I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we consider one of the most important Supreme Court cases of the year, Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia versus Comer. Uh, the question is, does the exclusion of churches from an otherwise neutral and secular government aid program violate the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment? I had the incredible honor of being in the courtroom yesterday to hear this argument, which was one of the first where Justice Neil Gorsuch participated. It was fascinating to hear the arguments, and I'm so excited that we have to discuss them, two of America's leading experts on religious liberty and the Constitution. Here with me in studio is Marcy Hamilton. She is Fox Family Pavilion Distinguished Scholar in Residence in the Program for Research on Religious and Urban Civil Society at the University of Pennsylvania. Marcy is also the Paul R. Vercule Research Chair at the Benjamin N. Cardoza School of Law at Yeshiva University. And joining by phone is Hannah Smith. She is senior counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Hannah was a member of the legal team that won victories in some of the most important religious cases in recent years, including Holton Hobbs and Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. And Hannah, like I, had the privilege of being in the courtroom yesterday. Marcy, Hannah, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Hannah, if you could start off, it was wonderful uh, that we were both in court. Um, tell our listeners briefly what the facts of the Trinity Lutheran case are and, and what the big constitutional questions are. Sure. So this is a case about Trinity Lutheran Church in Columbia, Missouri. The church runs a daycare and a preschool for about 90 children, ages 2 through kindergarten. And in 2012, Trinity Lutheran applied for a grant to resurface its playground, Missouri runs this program that provides grants for the installation of safe rubber playground surfaces using recycled shredded tires. So the two purposes of the program are to reduce the amount of used tires in Missouri landfills and to improve safety for children on playgrounds around the state. Um, the program is funded by a fee on the sale of new tires, and uh, that money then goes into a fund that is then dispersed to uh, those who are ranked high enough to receive grants for that year. So the grants are available to a wide range of groups, including public schools and parks and nonprofit daycares, but not everyone gets funds. It's a competitive process, so the applicants are given points for different things, uh, the amount of scrap tires generated in Missouri that would be used in the project, whether the playground is used by kids from low-income homes, and the school's recycling education curriculum, among other uh, secular neutral criteria. So the state ranked Trinity Lutheran fifth out of 44 applicants that year and funded 14 projects. Uh, but the state denied the grant to Trinity Lutheran solely because it is a church. And the state claimed that its constitution prevented it from giving money to a church, and that was the basis for its denial. So Trinity Lutheran filed a lawsuit and lost in both the district court and on appeal at the Eighth Circuit. And as its last resort, the Trinity Lutheran Church asked the U.S. Supreme Court to hear its case. Um, there were a lot of twists and turns in this case uh, leading up to oral argument yesterday. Uh, the court granted cert back in January 2016. It was about a month before Justice Scalia's passing in February. And typically the case would have been set for oral argument within several months. 
but Trinity Lutheran wasn't scheduled for oral argument for over a year. Uh, and during that time, uh, Missouri actually voted in a new governor and a new attorney general. Uh, and there were a lot of interesting little twists and turns about this case. The new attorney general was Republican Josh Hawley, who campaigned in favor of the church and against the outgoing Missouri administration's position in the case. He had actually filed an amicus brief on behalf of a private client in support of the church. Uh, so he recused himself from the case once he got into office, and he had a deputy handle it. Uh, after Judge Gorsuch was announced uh, as the new nominee for the Supreme Court, uh, the court set argument for the case for yesterday. But just a few days before oral argument, um, there was the final twist in the case when the new Missouri governor announced that he had instructed the, the agency that, that runs this program to permit religious organizations to apply for and be eligible to receive these grants. So at the 11th hour, the Supreme Court asked both parties to submit letters about whether or not the case was moot, um, and they both submitted letters the day before oral argument, and both of the parties agreed that the case was not moot and should go forward. So it was a lot of drama for this case, uh, but yesterday the oral arguments were really uh, very exciting to watch and really um, some fundamental clashes between different um, ideas of how this case should be uh, decided. They were indeed exciting to watch, and we'll talk about our impressions of the arguments in a moment. Thanks for that great summary of the case. Marcy, you can add anything you like to the honest description of the facts, but I want to jump into the constitutional stakes. And in your joint explainer on the Establishment Clause in the Interactive Constitution, you and Michael McConnell say the following, which I think is a very helpful way of setting up some of the stakes in this case. Uh, uh, and listeners, go, of course, to the Interactive Constitution and check out the Establishment Clause joint explainer by Marcy and Michael McConnell. And they say, scholars have long debated between two opposing interpretations of the Establishment Clause as it applies to government funding. First, that the government must be neutral between religious and non-religious institutions that provide education or other social services. Or two, that no taxpayer fund should be given to religious institutions if they might be used to communicate religious doctrine. Initially, the court tended toward the first interpretation. In the 70s and 80s, the court shifted to the second interpretation. And more recently, the court has decisively moved back to the first idea. Marcy, as I listened to the justices, almost uh, all of them, including Justices Breyer and Kagan, were, it seemed to be embracing that neutrality point of view. Only Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor were more driven to the separationist point of view. But tell our listeners why it was that although this case claimed to be a case about the free exercise clause and equality under the Equal Protection Clause, that Establishment Clause notion of neutrality seemed to be front and center. This was a difficult argument to read. I wasn't there in person, but read uh, the transcript. And the, the reason it was so difficult to read is because the separationist uh, instinct of the framers, and especially James Madison, has been completely uh, obliterated by an argument that there is this artificial neutrality in which you have to treat religion like everything else. Uh, so the, the Establishment Clause question is, uh, can we trust a union of power between church and state, and what do we do to make sure that that doesn't happen? And one of the ways that historically that it has been answered, both by the framers and by the court uh, although not so recently, is that we need to separate their spheres of power. And one of the ways we do that is we don't let the government directly fund mission and houses of worship. Uh, that principle of distrust of those in power was completely missing yesterday, except from two justices' calculations. And I think it's that baseline of do we trust 
religious organizations to have government funds and to do with them neutral purposes? Do we do we have that trust? Uh, I think that's disappeared from the discourse. So. F- fascinating. Well, just descriptively, Hannah, do, do you agree that this, uh, call it the, the, the neutral principle, the idea that government should be neutral between religious and non-religious institutions in the provision of public services does seem to be in the ascendancy on the court? And does that principle call into question the provision of the Missouri Constitution shared by 39 other states that bars the spending of public money, quote, directly or indirectly in aid of any church? Uh, That's known as a version of the Blaine Amendment. Tell us about those Blaine Amendments, how 39 states have them. There was a discussion yesterday. Justice Sotomayor said they were good expressions of separationism. Justice Alito said they were bad expressions of anti-Catholic bigotry. But is it correct or not that the principle of neutrality calls those Blaine Amendments into question? Well, there's a lot in that question. So let me start (laughs) with the neutrality principle. You know, we argued in our brief that we filed with Professor Michael McConnell of Stanford Law School that this principle of government neutrality towards religion is supported by both the free exercise and the establishment clauses, and that these provisions are complementary. And when they're read together, they support the proposition, as Justice O'Connor once said, that one's religion ought not to affect one's legal rights or duties or benefits. And I think you really see this neutrality principle recognized uh, in the very first case uh, that the court applied the Establishment Clause to the states, and that's in Everson. Um, the, the court explained in Everson that the government can't exclude members of any faith because of their faith or lack of it from receiving the benefits of public welfare legislation. And that principle of neutrality continued on in McDaniel against Haiti, which was a 1978 case where the court ruled that the Free Exercise Clause prohibits governments from excluding individuals from publicly available opportunities based on their religious status. And again, you know, in McDaniel, you had Justices Brennan and Marshall viewing this clergy disqualification provision as highly problematic because they thought it established a religious classification uh, in, involving a protected religious activity uh, to disqualify someone from office. Um, and again, you know, this neutrality principle was reaffirmed in the 1990 case of Employment Division against Smith, where the court reiterated and it cited McDaniel for the proposition that the government cannot impose special disabilities on the basis of religious views or religious status. Uh, and finally, in the 1993 case of Church of Lukumi Babuai, the court again uh, addressed this principle where it unanimously struck down these ordinances that violated the minimum requirement of neutrality that a law not discriminate on its face. So you have this neutrality principle that started in Everson, continuing through McDaniel on to Employment Division v. Smith, and finally into Lukumi, where the court has consistently applied this baseline rule that the Free Exercise Clause and the Establishment Clauses forbid the government from denying public benefits based on religious classifications. Now, you asked about the Blaine Amendments, and, you know, we've done a lot of work um, on the Blaine Amendments around the country in in different cases, Uh, but the Blaine Amendments are state constitutional provisions that were enacted during a wave of anti-Catholic bigotry in the 1800s. They exist in over 30 state constitutions, and they prohibit the government from giving aid to any institution that's sectarian, and back then that was code for Catholic. Um, They're often used nowadays to justify denying generally available state aid to any religious organization. Um, But these Blaine Amendments have really been problematic and troubling to many members of the Supreme Court. There are at least four current justices 
Kennedy, Thomas, Ginsburg, and Breyer, who have recognized the anti-Catholic roots of Blaine Amendments. Two of those, Thomas and Kennedy, have agreed that Blaine Amendments should be buried now <laughs> and recognize that they were born of bigotry. Um, and there are four recent justices who recently departed from the court, Rehnquist, Stevens, Scalia, and Souter, who joined them in condemning the anti-Catholic history of Blaine Amendments. So I think these Blaine Amendments are highly problematic, um, and they erect a much higher wall of separation than our current federal uh, Establishment Clause jurisprudence does uh, in allowing religious organizations to receive uh, benefits of public uh, funding. Thanks so much for that for that great answer, uh, Marcy. There was a lot in the question. Could you respond to Hannah's uh, comments, both about the progress of neutrality, uh, the constitutionality of the Blaine amendments, and what happened uh, to the separationist principle? So I, I would just back up all the way. Uh, Hannah has misstated the holding of Everson. Uh, Everson did not say that the state is required to provide busing for parochial schools. It said it could. It may provide busing uh, if it chooses to do so. But Everson also had extremely strong language warning that this is a slippery slope and that they did not actually expect the funding questions to explode in the way they eventually did. Uh, the court naively thought that once it opened the door to funding that somehow it would just end at busing. Uh, instead, what happened after Everson is that the religious organizations redoubled their efforts in lobbying uh, in the state capitals in order to get as many benefits as they could, and then, of course, eventually at the federal level as part of the White House uh, Office of Faith-Based Funding. So Everson does not say that they're required to. It only says that they can. Uh, rather, the question is, uh, is it consistent with constitutional principles to say that a state will not give state funds to a religious organization? And none of the Blaine Amendments single out the Catholic Church uh, the history behind the Blaine Amendments has been severely distorted. Uh, while uh, there's a lot of talk about how it's anti-Catholic and it was unfortunate that Justice Alito uh, embraced that uh, misreading of history, the Blaine Amendments grew out of concerns that people were divided in their loyalty between the Vatican and the United States, that there was a divide in political loyalty. Uh, and uh, But... but they understood, just as James Madison understood, that uh, to the extent that the government provides financial support, and what Madison said is not one penny ever from a state government over to a religious organization, to the extent that uh, the Blaine Amendments are out there, it, they apply to every religious organization, <clears throat> excuse me, and they rest on the concept that there is real danger that arises when... Uh, funding from a government organization flows into religious coffers. And we can see the effects of that because the the actual agenda behind a case like this, and it's my view that this case should not have been taken because it trivializes the dangers that the Establishment Clause is supposed to protect uh, by talking about a playground for children rather than uh, the, the the bigger picture here. The agenda here is to increasingly get the court to say that you can never, the government may never distinguish between funding for religious groups and funding for non-religious groups. Uh, and the bottom line here is that if the reading is correct from the Beckett Fund and the Alliance Defending Freedom, then the bottom line is that the taxpayer funds that are gathered for public schools 
cannot be only given to public schools. The idea is that you would then have to derive part of those funds and hand them over to religious organizations. So this is a an extraordinary slippery slope. Where is the court right now? This court, uh, as I said earlier, has forgotten that there is reason to be distrustful of the union of power between church and state. And so the so-called neutral position, which is actually uh, a, a very, very subtle and clever grab for public funds, that neutral position is the one that's dominant. No question about it. Um, thanks very much for that response. Uh, listeners, if you want to remember the name of the Blaine Amendments, uh, please recall this jingle from the uh, presidential campaign of uh, 1884. Uh, Blaine was defeated by Grover Cleveland, and Cleveland supporters cried, Blaine, Blaine, James G. Blaine, the continental liar from the state of Maine. Um, Hannah, uh, tell us, uh, you respond as you think best to uh, Marcy, but tell us what happened to, I don't know if you want to call it the elephant in the room, uh, but there was one word that was never uttered during the argument yesterday, and that was lemon. And there's a famous test called Lemon versus Kurtzman, which uh, listeners can check out on the Interactive Constitution. Marcy and Michael McConnell describe it, the 1971 case, saying that to violate the Establishment Clause, the question is whether a statute has a secular legislative purpose, whether its principal effect uh, advances or inhibits religion, and the state can't foster an excessive entanglement with religion. None of the lawyers mentioned the name Lemon yesterday, but the, the state's lawyer repeatedly described that the state had adopted the ex playground exclusion in order to avoid excessive entanglement uh, advancing religion, and it seemed like the state was trying to avoid an Establishment Clause violation uh, in adopting the program, but just didn't want to mention the word lemon because the case is so out of fashion that the late Justice Scalia described it as the ghoul in the horror movie that would rise up at the last minute and uh, discomfit listeners. So tell us about lemon as a kind of uh, brooding omnipresence uh, in the case and what the relevance of that test uh, today still is. Sure. Well, let me just respond, first of all, about Everson, because, uh, you know, the, the neutrality principle is definitely evident in the court's opinion in Everson. Uh, Everson does state a very strong principle of separation between church and state, but the case, you know, involved the public benefit of reimbursement for bus travel to and from schools, and that was a matter of a general safety benefit uh, that the modern state would provide to all parents. And the court held that those benefits can't be denied to those at religious schools. And the court's language was really important because they said if religious parents are singled out for denial, then that would be impinging on their free exercise. The state would be their adversary, is what the court said. In other words, the state would be handicapping those parents because of their religion. And I, I just want to remind folks that Everson was decided in 1947. It was the beginning of the modern welfare state. Uh, where, you know, the provision of, for safety and health was not limited to police and fire protection. So, you know, bus transportation was an example where children are safer when they're riding buses as opposed to walking to school, and playground safety is another example of that, too. Um, so, you know, I just, going on to your question about lemon, I think um, you're right, you know, there was hardly a mention of, of lemon in the argument yesterday, and I think this is really um telling, because if you look at the court's jurisprudence over the last several uh, terms, um, the court has not actually applied the Lemon Test in an Establishment Clause case for over 10 years. It's been a long time. And if they have referenced Lemon, it's merely in passing to sort of say, well, those are helpful guideposts, but we're not going to apply that test here. So 
the lemon test, as Justice Scalia once said, uh, is the, like a late night ghoul in a horror movie that comes out of its grave to haunt us, and, and then we have to put it back in its coffin and, and nail it shut. Um, it, it's highly problematic. Uh, there are several justices who have written uh, dissents from denial of cert saying that the court should have taken this Establishment Clause case to clean up our extremely messy Establishment Clause jurisprudence. Um, and I think you're seeing the court trying to grapple with, well, what do we do if we don't use lemon? What do we apply? And that's sort of where we are going next. Uh, very interesting. Marcy, where are the justices going if they don't apply Lennon? What's the alternative that they're embracing? And also, Hanna said something very interesting, that 1947 was the beginning of the welfare state, and the court is grappling with how to adjudicate the provision of general benefits like police forces and also buses to schools, uh, to, to religious schools. And that really came up yesterday in the argument where both Justices Breyer and Kagan said, well, wouldn't it be unconstitutional to deny police protection or fire protection to churches? And if so, then why isn't it also unconstitutional to deny this aid to schools? So how does the growth of the modern welfare state play into this uh, neutrality principle? Well, it, it doesn't really play into the doctrine so much as it's part of the propaganda by those who are trying to erase the Establishment Clause. Uh, essentially, the argument is that the Establishment Clause is being tucked into the Free Exercise Clause, so that the only value is the value from the perspective of the religious organization, and it's not the value from the larger uh, culture and, and, and uh, all those who are not part of a particular religious organization. I'm going to say it again because it's so important to correct misstatements. Everson did not say that uh, the state of New Jersey was required to provide busing to the parochial schools. It only said that it was permissible in that case. But because it was such a de minimis issue in that case and because it was neutral, well, then it was okay. Uh, and that language about it was okay because it was neutral has now been turned into a mandate for neutrality. Uh, that somehow you can answer all the questions you need to answer under the free exercise and the establishment clauses, the religion clauses together, by simply asking, is a religious organization getting what everybody else is getting? Uh, and I, I was truly disappointed uh, in the preparation of the justices yesterday on the police and fire question. The question was, is it constitutional to exclude police and fire protection from a religious organization? And the answer has to be yes, of course they can. But the reason is, is because they are not on level footing with everybody else. They are not similarly situated. The state could also revoke the tax exemption that makes it possible for them not to pay property taxes, which means they don't support police and fire. So you have to, you have to back up and, and unpack a lot of what's going on here. The surface is, oh, we have to treat everybody the same. But we don't treat everybody the same. We do not tr treat religious organizations the same. They are already tax-exempt on both income and property uh, so that uh, the police and fire question, actually the more important question in my view, is the one that's already been answered with the fundamentalist Mormons out in the West. And the question was, could they require a police and fire system that's only tailored to their religious organization? Uh, the fundamentalist Mormons had kicked out the state uh, police and fire and had put only their own believers into police and fire. The federal government won a recent case in which it was held that it was unconstitutional 
to have a system that is tailored to this religious organization. We now have a circumstance in Alabama where another religious organization is demanding the same thing, that they have police and fire tailored to them. The, the justices were not as prepared as they should have been on the question of what are the facts on the ground? How are religious organizations different from every other organization? Because they are, and, they, and for that reason, they can be treated differently. Very interesting. Uh, Hannah, Justice Sotomayor entertained the possibility that religious organizations could be denied tax exemption. She said many Americans favor that denial. I do not, said Justice Sotomayor, suggesting that no members of the court were prepared to re-examine the tax exemption for religious organizations. My, my, my question to you is, on the court and among lower courts, how much support is there for let's call it the separationist position that Marcy is embracing, and how much has this neutrality position gained ascendance? I just don't want you to be descriptive here because we're really talking about the clash between two very different visions of the relation between the Establishment and Free Exercise Clause. Sure. Well, I thought that was a really fascinating part of the argument, actually, yesterday when Justice Sotomayor asked the question, what do we do about discrimination for religion? And she talked about tax benefits and exemptions. And she said, well, plenty, plenty of people think that tax exemptions go too far. But then she said, I don't. I'm just saying there are people who make that claim. So apparently we got a view into what Justice Sotomayor thinks about um, tax exemptions, which is good for future cases. Um, but, you know, I, I think yesterday on the court, you really saw uh, Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan uh, be very concerned about this particular context where you're offering a public safety benefit to a broad range of different types of organizations that are applying for this benefit based on over 15 different neutral secular criteria. Uh, they were really concerned to say that you can deny those benefits just based on their religious status. Um, and Justice Breyer was very animated about it. I mean, he really, really grilled uh, Missouri's attorney over uh, these different questions about crossing guards and fire protection and health inspections and uh, different other benefits that, that churches uh, receive. Um, and so I think, you know, his he he and Justice Kagan, I think, were both concerned um, about upholding Missouri's policy here. And if if you remember um, what Justice Kagan said, uh, she referred to the longstanding constitutional principle. Uh, she says it's as strong as any constitutional principle that there is, that when we have a program of funding, everybody is entitled to that funding, whether or not they exercise a constitutional right. She said, whether or not they're a religious institution doing religious things, as long as you're using money for playground services, you're not disentitled from that program because you're a religious institution doing religious things. She said that's a pretty strong principle in our constitutional law. How is that not violated here? I mean, she was very strong on this issue. And later she said there's a clear burden on the constitutional right here uh, because people of a certain religious status are being prevented from competing in the same way as everybody else for a neutral benefit. So, you know, I thought yesterday at the court there was a pretty clear indication from Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan that they were quite concerned about um, the, the churches being denied based on their religious status uh, due to these principles of neutrality that we've been discussing. Marcy, uh, I, I had the same impression uh, as, as Hannah that Justices Kagan and Breyer were leaning toward the neutrality principle. Um, I was surprised by that in Justice Breyer's case since he, after all, had joined the decision in Zelman and 
Simmons versus uh, Harris in 2002, uh, dissenting from the court's decision to uphold school vouchers on the ground that it was private choice rather than public choice that, that determined the destination of the vouchers. So has Justice Breyer evolved on the question of neutrality? And more broadly, why is it that we find ourselves with a court where only two justices seem to embrace the separationist as opposed to neutrality principle? Well, I, I think we need to go back in history uh, and fundamentally review why it is that we have two clauses in the, re- in the uh, religion clauses. We have a free exercise clause uh, for the exercise of religion and worship, but we also have an establishment clause because the framers fundamentally understood the dangers of established churches. Uh, they experienced them early in the history of the United States, but more importantly, the framing generation still remembered why many of them had come over here, and that was because of the dangers of established religion. I think that we have done a terrible job of educating uh, the public and educating students on why it is you would have an establishment clause. Uh, And instead, we are now uh, victims of extraordinary public relations in which the argument is made repeatedly that anything that you do for religion is good for society, and that anything you do that does not favor religion is bad for society. That's the calculus that you could hear him making. Uh, And that is a mistake. That is a a fundamental, foundational mistake about the framing of the United States Constitution. Madison understood and explained repeatedly that when you have a union of power between church and state, you have tyranny. Uh, But at the same time, we've also forgotten, not only in this arena, but also in the uh, executive branch, we have forgotten this concept that anyone who holds power has to be distrusted. That was the Calvinist idea at the time of the framing. That's why the Constitution has worked. Uh, So I was not at all surprised by Justice Kagan. Uh, She has been uh, very, very uh, favorable toward religion and religious concepts from the beginning, Uh, I think it's unfortunate, but I do think that Justice Breyer has been taken in by this uh, surface concept of neutrality. Um, Hannah, what would you describe as the relation between the free exercise clause and the establishment clause? There was discussion in the argument about whether the establishment clause is a floor or a ceiling, and it's uh, rather intricate, but what's the relation between the two clauses? And also, what's your response to Marcy's claim that at the time of the framing, certain of the framers, in particular Madison and Jefferson, seemed to talk in separationist terms that the neutrality principle doesn't entirely capture? Yeah, thank you. I actually wanted to go back to that. I I think it's really instructive to look at the public grants that were debated um, at the time of the founding. Uh, We talked about this a little bit in our brief before the court in this case, but they were not part of neutral programs available to religious and non-religious people alike, um, like we're talking about here. Um, They were grants that were solely for the support of the clergy in the performance of their religious functions. So if anything, if you look at the founding era practice uh, of including churches in a wide variety of public benefits, um, from tax exemptions uh, to incorporation rights, uh, to land grants and to postage subsidies, to educational funding, um, there's more examples that we could even look at. Uh, I think it strongly suggests that including religious groups in these neutral public benefits programs was not viewed uh, as an establishment at the founding. And, you know, I would also say, even under this court's most stringent no-aid decisions in the 1970s, 
the inclusion of um, churches in this kind of a program, like the Scrap Tire program, would have easily survived strict scrutiny. The court even then said that a state may include church-related schools providing bus transportation, school lunches, public health facilities, because they're secular, non-ideological services unrelated to the primary religion-oriented educational function of the sectarian school. And that's exactly what we have here um, in the Shredded Tire program. They're, they're secular, they're non-ideological services that make playgrounds safer. They don't inculcate a particular religious uh, tenet. So I think it's just important to re-emphasize that even at the height of the no-aid separationism, uh, you know, outright money grants were never forbidden. You know, direct aid was subject to this limitation that it could not be used for forms of aid that had or could be diverted to religious content. So here with the Scrap Tire program, just like bus rides and school lunches, the government could reimburse for these rubberized school playgrounds for the benefit of all the children uh, wherever they go to school and, and not discriminate against uh, the religious schools simply because they're religious. Thanks for that. Marcy, please respond. And if you'll allow me, I want to read from Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance Against Religious Assessments from 1785. Listeners can check it out on the interactive Constitution. Go to Writing Rights, click on the First Amendment, and you'll see this antecedent to the First Amendment. This is Madison describing why the rights of conscience, including the right to worship or not, are unalienable rights, that is, rights that can't be alienated to government during the transition from the state of nature to civil society. And it's such a great definition of why the framers considered the rights of conscience to be unalienable. I want Marcy's thoughts about how it feeds into Madison's separationist ideas. This is Madison. Because we hold it for a fundamental and undeniable truth, quote, that religion or the duty which we owe to our creator and the manner of discharging it can be directed only by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. He's quoting there from the Virginia Declaration of Rights written by uh, George Mason. The religion then of every man must be left to the conviction and conscience of every man, and it is the right of every man to exercise it as those may dictate. Here's the definition of unalienable rights. This right is in its nature an unalienable right. It is unalienable because the opinions of men, depending only on the evidence contemplated by their own minds, cannot follow the dictates of other men. It is unalienable also because what is here a right toward men is a duty toward the creator, is the duty of every man to render the creator such homage and such only as he believes acceptable to him. So, Marcy, how does that feed into Madison's separationism, and what can that definition of unalienable rights tell us about how to interpret the Free Exercise and Establishment Clause? Well, that is certainly the most popular quote that is taken from the Memorial and Remonstrance, but it is not the separationist quote. Uh, the Memorial and Remonstrance also has a very uh, strongly worded position on the dangers of government support of religion uh, and the dangers, uh, he points to historically the Inquisition and says that support of religion in the United States is simply a different type, a different kind in um, the amount of support. It's no different from the Inquisition. And that's what I've been arguing here, which is that if we forget the Inquisition and the ability of religious organizations to uh, overcome the society, we do ourselves a disfavor. So, so Madison is a separationist as much as he is believing in the free exercise clause. So yep, you have two clauses. So, that, so that's easy enough. Uh, just a quick response to what Hannah was saying, which is that what she was describing was the state of the law in the states uh, at the time of the founding. True. We had many, many establishments, uh, a variety of types of establishments. They all had disappeared after the framing of the Constitution, its enactment in about 1830. Uh, and so 
I, I don't buy the argument that, oh, we used to give a lot of money to religious organizations, so now we can. And I really am going to reiterate, I think, for the third time, that there is a very clever trick that's being propagated in this neutralist discussion. And that is what they're saying is that the government must support religion if it supports neutral organiza- secular organizations. But all of the cases say that they may, not that they must. And what this case is about is are we going to turn the corner from saying that a state may support religion as part of a general policy and we're going to turn the corner to saying that they must if they fund anything. And as I said before, what's really at stake here, and it's why it's so unfortunate this is about a, uh, a playground, what's really at stake here is if the argument goes to you must support religious organizations if you are financially supporting non-religious organizations, that is the deconstruction of the public school system and an argument that taxpayer funds must be handed to parochial and private religious schools if taxpayer funds are are collected for education. And there is no question that the neutralist argument is being foisted upon us in part to reach that end. So uh, while this case is easy for the justices to say, oh, it's just a playground, just the way the Everson court said, oh, it's just a couple of buses, uh, there's a lot at stake here. And it's really that may versus must question that's at stake. Thanks for that. Uh, Hannah, the memorial and remonstrance was an argument against Virginia's tax uh, to support the ministers of the Church of England, and Madison gave a series of arguments to oppose that tax. Um, Is it fair to say that we're dealing here with a question the framers didn't anticipate, namely how to uh, deal with the relationship between churches and the modern welfare state. There, there wasn't a welfare state at the time of the framing. There, there were tax and police benefits, but there weren't public schools and so forth. So are we trying to translate the framers' principles into a new world? And, and to that degree, are there plausible arguments on, on both sides? I think that's really an important question. And, you know, I am all for looking at history and for looking at what the founders uh, you know, thought about these questions, and I think it's very important to look at that uh, founding generation and, and get glean examples from that time period. Um, but I do think that it's, uh, you know, a very different world that we live in now with the emergence of the modern welfare state and all of the sort of uh, neutral programs that are available to both religious and non-religious alike. Uh, it's a very different concept um, than, you know, what they were looking at, which were direct money grants and supportive clergy doing their religious functions. And so I think, you know, if you if you step back and think about this problem um, in, a, in a different way, you know, if we if we were to say we're going to open up this public uh, grant program to resurface playgrounds and we're going to let everybody apply, but you can't apply if your last name starts with the letter T. You know, I mean that would just be blatantly discriminatory. Or we say you can't apply because of your race, or you can't apply because of your ethnicity, or you can't apply because of your gender. You know, we would say, well, that's just wrong. But all of a sudden, because it's religion that's the category that's being used to exclude, we say, oh, well, but wait a second, the states can do this if they want, and, and you know, this is, there's not a problem here. So I just think that we have to consider, again, what you said is the emergence of the modern welfare state does change uh, the calculus here, and especially, as the justice pointed out yesterday in the argument, when you have a program like this that's based on neutral secular criteria and religious groups meet those neutral secular criteria, uh, 
as Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer indicated, you can't uh, exclude them merely because of their religious status. And that's what we're saying. And that's a very fundamental uh, principle in our constitutional uh, history that we have to recognize. And so when Marcy says, well, this is turning May into must, well, it, it is, but it's partly because we have these longstanding principles that say you can't discriminate based on status. And here they're clearly doing that by discriminating against these churches based on their religion. Thanks for that. So, Marcy, your, your response, Hannah says, channeling Justices Breyer and Kagan, given the emergence of the modern welfare state, it would be a kind of discrimination, a, a, a violation of equality to single out churches for special disfavor among other public institutions, and therefore the equality principle, as much as the free exercise clause requires equal treatment. What's the response? Well, the response is that uh, at a very basic level, religion, <clears throat> excuse me, religion is very different from any other organization. Uh, its power is indisputed, uh, and its capacity to um, influence uh, is extraordinary. We're dealing here with government and religion, which are the two most authoritative structures of human existence. Uh, given the power of religion and its obvious power in the public square in order to uh, obtain the benefits it seeks, I think it is actually uh, misleading to argue that it has anything to do, that it's on par with either the letter T uh, or with uh, race. Religion is different. It is fundamentally different from anything else in our human experience, and we have plenty of history, both present and past, which shows us that the union of power between church and state is extremely dangerous. Uh, so uh, the... It's simply false that the Supreme Court has had a doctrine which says the must is what has to be followed here. Uh, the question is whether or not by cloaking this, by clothing it as though religion is no different from anything else and it's just a status, uh, that uh, the result should be in favor of the religious organization. Uh, it's very clever use of terminology, uh, but it abandons what made the United States uh, novel in world history, and that is its ability to say there is actually a difference between government and religion. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, your response, uh, Hannah, and there certainly is language in some of the previous cases which suggests that religion is different. There's the frequent quotation of Jefferson's wall of separation metaphor and Justice Hugo Black's famous uh, statement that we couldn't approve the slightest breach of that wall. That's been compared to the Alexander Pope line saying she would ne'er consent consented because after he quoted that, he allowed the uh, funds to go to the public schools. But what's, what's your response to Marcy's claim that historically religion is different and therefore it can be treated differently for, for welfare state purposes? Well, I, I would just refer you back again to Justices Brennan and Marshall. Uh, in their opinion in the McDaniel against Petey case in 1978. And I'm going to read you what they said in that case. They said, the Establishment Clause does not license government to treat religion and those who teach or practice it simply by virtue of their status as such, as subversive of American ideals and therefore subject to unique disabilities. That's Justices Brennan and Marshall saying that, okay? I think that, you know, this idea that we have to treat religion different and subject it to disabilities um, and to uh, discriminate against it uh, really shows the, um, the pervasive hostility that separationists have towards religion in general. So, you know, here 
I think we're probably going to get a decision out of the court uh, that's in favor of the church uh, based on a neutral uh, neutral principles ground. And I think that that's um, as it should be. I think that that would be a logical extension of uh, two converging trends uh, in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence over the last past few decades uh, to move away from its strict no-aid separationism to an equal funding position in its establishment clause cases and uh, converging with a move towards requiring public funding to religious groups and general benefits program in its other First Amendment case law. And I think that that's an entirely logical progression and something that has been happening over the last several uh, decades. And those two converging trends are meeting in this case uh, to provide the result um, that I've just discussed. And I think that it's... Um, it's unfortunate that people have such a hostility towards religion uh, that they want to discriminate against it uh, in such blatant ways. Um, but I think the justices saw through that in the argument yesterday, and I think that there's going to be uh, an opinion in favor of the church in this case. Great. One last beat, and then we'll have our closing arguments. Marcy, there was much focus on Justice uh, Gorsuch during his first week on the court. He said during the argument that the program in question amounted to discrimination on the basis of religion. Uh, we know that's happened in this case, right? He said um, before the argument, many had thought that he might provide the fifth vote in a five to four decision afterward. It sounds like he may be one of what could be a seven member majority. So what did you make of Justice Gorsuch's questions and might he uh, provide less of a, a difference in these religion cases than thought because there seems to be a, a comfortable majority in favor of the neutrality position? Well, I think that he is... Uh pretty much an equality uh, replacement for Justice Scalia. Uh, and Justice Scalia was among the leaders on the court trying to bury the Establishment Clause principles. And, you know, his ghoul line is, is, is very quotable. Uh, but the hostility here has been the hostility toward establishment. I'm going to take deep exception to Hannah uh, talking about hostility to religion as part of the separationist agenda. The separationist agenda is not only not hostile to religion, but it is fundamentally Calvinist. Uh, it is the concept that humans cannot be trusted with power, and when they are given power, they have to be carefully limited, and that that principle applies to religious believers even more uh, than just about any other context. So this isn't hostility toward religion. This is actually a competing religious viewpoint. And so the, the attempt by those who have the neutralist position to say that they are the religious, but anyone who disagrees with them are the non-religious, that is the hostility. And that is the single most problematic part of this entire development in the law. Do I think the court is going to go with the playground uh, and say that they can have their playground? Yes, I do. Uh, do I think that that's a mistake? It's only a mistake if they let it go beyond the playground. Um, thanks for that. Hannah, one last question on Justice Gorsuch. What did you think of his question? And are there areas where he might make a difference in 5-4 cases, in particular those involving open state acknowledgement of religion, such as those cases involving school prayer, which may be more likely to be 5-4? to four? Uh, You know, yesterday during the argument, uh, he asked very few questions. Um, uh, he was clearly interested in sort of the line that was being discussed between selective versus universal uh, programs. Um, but generally, I've studied his uh, jurisprudence over the last 10 years on the Tenth Circuit in preparation for some testimony in his nomination hearings, and he has had several very prominent religious liberty cases that he has decided as a judge on the Tenth Circuit 
the most notable of which was the Yellow Bear case. Uh, it was a RELUPA claim by a Native American prisoner uh, who wanted access to a sweat lodge but was denied that access for a variety of reasons. And um, Judge Gorsuch wrote a very lengthy opinion uh, detailing why the government needed to be put to its to its test. It needed to show why it couldn't uh, accommodate this religious request by this prisoner and ultimately found in favor of of the Native American prisoner. Um, of course, he also wrote a concurrence in the Hobby Lobby uh, case. Uh, he joined the majority and wrote separately as well uh, in support of Hobby Lobby's rights under RIFA um, uh, against the HHS contraceptive mandate. Uh, and he also voted in favor of rehearing in the Little Sisters uh, case uh, and joined an opinion saying that the uh, original panel against the Little Sisters was clearly and gravely wrong. Um, he has had some cases where he has uh, found against religious litigants, uh, where he has found that their claims were either insincere or, uh, you know, that they were trying to pull one over on the court. Um, so I think he's pretty fair uh, and even-handed in how he has applied RIFRA and RLUPA, uh to protect some religious uh, litigants and, and to, um, to, to, you know, throw out claims that were insincere as well. Um, I have not seen uh, any case of his in the First Amendment uh, free exercise context, but I think given his robust application of RIFRA um, and RELUPA, I think that he probably would be one who would um, uh, have a fairly robust view of, of free exercise. Um, and so I, I think that he's going to play a, a pivotal role in religious liberty cases going forward, uh, particularly since it, it seems that he has such an interest in these cases and has written so many opinions on them uh, during his time on the Tenth Circuit. So, yes, I do think that he's going to be in the mold of you know, Justice Alito and uh, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts, who both have written several opinions on the court during their tenure uh, uh, in religious liberty cases. Thank you so much for that. All right, it's time for closing arguments in this absolutely fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, Marcy, first one to you. And the question is, uh, why do you believe that the Missouri program barring religious institutions from receiving playground funds violates the First Amendment? And why should our listeners care about this case? Uh, well, I, I think that it's obvious that it is constitutional to exclude religious organizations from uh, state aid. Uh, now, it, it, it's unconstitutional to exclude a particular religious organization. So they, they couldn't choose this, this, just this church to exclude. Uh, but there's a long tradition, uh, which was uh, basically recognized in Locke v. Davey, which we haven't talked about, but is right on target. Uh, that it's okay for the state to engage in this kind of differential behavior. Um, what's at stake here is actually, it, it's probably smaller than I'm making it sound because it's my view that the naive neutralist position is really just a temporary uh, bump on the road on the way to a better balance between church and state. Uh, the younger generation is not in line with the concept that you can trust religious organizations at every moment, and they're certainly not in line with the idea that the um, uh, already the extraordinary tax subsidies going to religious organizations make sense. So this is part of our history. Uh, I, the bottom line of this case is that uh, the court does sound like it's going to say, yep, it's okay to give them the, the recycled tires for their playground and there will be no harm, no foul. Uh, the question will be whether or not this creates the argument for the cases that are already percolating on whether or not it's constitutional for 
local governments to only give taxpayer funds to public schools. That's really what's at stake here. This case may or may not determine that result. Thanks so much for that. Hannah, last word to you. Uh, Why do you believe that the Missouri program in its original form, uh, which denied public funds to religious schools for playgrounds, uh, violated the First Amendment? And why should our listeners care about it? Well, I think this is a really important case, and it's important to focus on what's really going on here. Uh, The state of Missouri applied a rule that singles out this daycare for exclusion from this generally available public safety-related benefit for children. And it singled them out uh, and denied this grant solely because the daycare is operated by a church. And there's a long line of Supreme Court precedent that states the general principle that the government cannot single out institutions for a disability solely because of their religious status. And again, this is not just a conservative justice's principle. I mean, this is something that was clearly stated by Justices Brennan and Marshall in the McDaniel against Patey case in 1978, where they wrote separately in a concurrence to say that you cannot impose unique disabilities on religious people just because of their religion, and that our law does not give license to treat religion uh, differently. Uh, and to, to be, sub, you know, to treat them as though they're subversive to American ideals or to American values, that these unique disabilities are highly suspect and that they uh, should fail under the First Amendment. So that's what's going on here. If you look at the policy that Missouri set up, it does exactly what the Free Exercise Clause says it can't do uh, on its face. It denies religious organizations access to public safety benefits. And it does so based solely on their religious status. So it's facially discriminatory, which uh, is highly suspect. And it denies a public benefit based solely on their religious status. So both of those things are problematic under the Free Exercise Clause and mean that the state of Missouri cannot exclude these churches from this public safety benefit program in this case. Thank you so much, Hannah Smith and Marcy Hamilton, for an illuminating, substantive, and really educational discussion of the most important religious liberty case of the term. Uh, Listeners, if you feel like homework, um, and this is really interesting homework, go to the Interactive Constitution, read the statements both on the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Marcy wrote both of them, the first with Michael McConnell and the second with Fred Geddes, and you will see where... uh, liberal and conservative scholars agree and disagree about these crucial clauses of the Constitution. Hannah, Marcy, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at Constitution CTR. And sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. It's this wonderful assembly of all of our great constitutional content from the podcast to the videos to the interactive Constitution, and I would love to share it with you. Please also subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Live at America's Town Hall will be running great excerpts from our programs that aren't on this podcast, including our superb Freedom Day launch of our Madisonian Commission, A Constitution for All. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. 
check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate, which, as you know, dear We the People listeners, is so important in these polarized times. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. If you're a regular listener, you should be a member now, and I want you to be, so go sign up right now. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.